when you decide to take fate for a spin. When wizards decide to stir the pot. When you fancy the odds of six versus two. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 132nd entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, August 29th, and released Wednesday, September 2nd, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? Well, in this week's Adventurers Pack, Ryu is on a roll. Next, we check out some D&D news as we uncover everything that we were able to find in Tasha's Cauldron. After that, we take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep for some yummy, yummy brains, before finally heading over to the scrying pool to see what you all have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurer's packs. You always carry this much in your bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid roll for. Along with my dice obsession comes a love for not just polyhedrals, but also the more unconventional die shapes, as I'm sure you guys probably remember from when I talked about the dice coins a while back. So when I heard about the dice spinners from Mithril Armory, I had to give them a try. Mithril's dice spinners are metal knobs that spin on a numbered base with a colored ball that indicates the result, and they're made for play areas that have minimal room for rolling. And they also have a non-slip base, and they can spin in either direction, so whether you're right or left-handed, it's all good. And really, they look pretty cool. There are two spinners. They have one that's a D20-D10 combo and one that's a D48-D60-12 combo. So you get all of the regular dice minus the percentile die in two spinners. So I got myself one of each. And I have to say, I really like the D20-D10 spinner. The numbers are split between two levels and they're arranged in a nice non-incremental pattern. And the rolls feel pretty random to me. The spinner knob sits on top of a set of loose ball bearings in a track, one of which is a different color, and that indicates the result. It spins very easily, and I actually really like the sound that it makes. And just to give you a demonstration... So the 48612 variant is a little bit different. There are two different colored ball bearings instead of one, and they're evenly spaced out in the track, and it's made so that you only look at one side at a time, depending on which die you're rolling. Now, I do like this one, but the numbers are actually incremented instead of spread out, so it really doesn't feel as random to me. The first few times I used it, I actually got the same result several times in a row, and I had to learn to spin it two or three times before getting a more random result to pop up. Now there is also a hard case that's made to carry both of the spinners together, and it's pretty nice as well. There are two depressions in the bottom of the case that keep the spinners from moving around during transit, and the depressions are actually fairly shallow, but because of the non-slip base, they still stay in place really well. 
They're actually on sale at the time of this recording over on the Mithril website, but I do feel I should warn you, even with the sale price, they are not cheap. They normally retail for $72 each, so if you want one of these and can take advantage of the sale, do it. They're also pretty heavy as far as dice or dice alternatives go. They weigh almost a pound and a half when together in the case, which is between half and three quarters of a kilogram for those of you who use metric. Yes. Mithril is also the place that did a Kickstarter recently for a foldable D20, which is also on sale on their website at the time of this recording. And they also have another Kickstarter in progress for a really neat collection of system agnostic physical puzzles with an expanding adventure setting to go with them that lets you reuse the puzzles in different ways depending on where you are in the campaign world. I think there's about two weeks left on that Kickstarter, so if you want to check it out, go get on that soon. As far as the spinners, they are a really fun addition to the table, and while I don't see myself letting go of my love for polyhedrals anytime soon, I do think that at least the 2010 spinner is going to get some good use in my games, if for nothing else, the sound that it makes. So you sent us this earlier and I went and checked it out and I just wanted to let everybody know if you are looking at this you have to dig through the website and go to the crowdfunding section in order to find videos on how they work. If you click on the products there is not a video on them that actually says how they work they've just got still images. So it actually took me a while to find that so I'm telling you guys so that you don't have to go through my pain on that. Having said that they are quite simple you basically spin it and it gives you a number. And that's pretty much all there is to them. But they do look really cool. I like the um, the ball on the top. Um, this is going to be such a weird thing to say, but it looks super sleek and shiny. It is. I don't want to say futuristic, but it's got that kind of, uh, yeah, that sort of aesthetic to it. And I really like it. Because of, I mean, obviously it's a perfect sphere. It's highly polished and there are very few... It's very reflective, so when you watch in the video that they're spinning it, it almost looks like the top ball isn't moving because it's it's mounted in place and it's spinning perfectly on an axis. So other than the decal at the top, it doesn't look like it's actually moving, which can give a nice little weird optical effect because when somebody's like moving their fingers back and forth on it. it. It almost looks like the fingers are moving without the ball rotating at all. Yeah, so I'm actually glad um, that we've got Ostron here for this because one thing that I did want to know is, compared to a dice, how random are these actually likely to be? Hold on, I'm going to have to have, have you say that again because I might fly over to your side of the pond and hit you on the back of the head for that. <laughs> you said a dice. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I always get confused between is it die single, dice if it's more than one, and then if, if multiple I mean, people die, what is that? According to uh, Miriam Webster, a dice is technically correct, but I refuse to agree with that. So, <laughs> Ostron. Hi. <laughs> Compared to a polyhedral randomizer, how <laughs> random would these be? Um, I mean, it's sort of the same thing I mean I don't think you lose anything one way or the other because the thing is when I was thinking of this if someone gives a weak spin on it 
theoretically, it's possible to sort of game it. So you might not be able to choose the exact number, but for example, if the indicator is sitting on the one and you just sort of half-heartedly flick it, you can sort of assume that it's going to end up in the same area. I mean, it depends on how well lubricated the ball bearings are. But, I mean, the same argument can be made for dice. If you've got a d6 and someone just sort of lifts it up and drops it rather than literally shaking it back and forth in their hand and letting it roll off you know you can you can argue that it's less random than than otherwise but um i don't think just based on the physical construction of the device there's anything inherently more or less random about it I mean, except for what I already said about the D46, D8, D12. Yeah, I mean, the spacing of the numbers is a little bit concerning to me just because, I don't know about concern, but would probably confuse me is the indicator is one of the smaller ball bearings and it's a different color, but it's still round and it takes up probably a good, like, quarter inch two millimeters and that's a fairly wide space now obviously you should go for the center line but the the indicators on the bottom of the dial are a little bit of a distance so i can just see some scenarios where there might be an argument between where the indicator is actually Position, particularly because on the D20, the 1 is right next to the 20 and there's a thin <laughs> line in between. So if that indicator lands um, on the line... Just so you know, apparently the picture that they have on the website is the prototype and the 1 is not next to the 20 on the one that I have. Ah, okay. It's next to the 12 and the 19. All right, well, Better. in that case, the <laughs> the pictures and the video are all misleading then. But still, in my mind, there's possibly a chance that there could be some argument over what number is actually being indicated for literal edge cases. But, I mean, it's just like when a die is cocked because it landed up against a piece of scenery or a book or a pencil or something you know, the table have to figure out how it works. Right, which is quite ironic because one of the things that they list as a selling point for this is that you avoid the issues of having cocked die. But other than that, these look fun. I'm not convinced I'll get one for the price because my wallet cries enough already. They're very pricey. <laughs> but they're also very cool. What colour did so you get, pretty. by the way? I got the D20 in the gunmetal and green monster, and I got the D48, D6, D12 in the blue ice and gunmetal. Excellent choices. I thought so. Links to Mithril Armory can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? You know I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. 
This week in D&D News, if you've not already heard the news circulating absolutely everywhere, a new sourcebook is coming our way on November 17th, entitled Tush's Cauldron of Everything. Unlike most releases from Wizards of the Coast, where we're fed maybe the odd monster or a quick flash of an out-of-focus page during a fireside chat, Wizards have actually been relatively free with the details of this book. Having said that, new details are being released all the time and certain things are being clarified, so whilst the information we're about to provide is as up to date as we can make it, please forgive anything that changes or becomes known once this has been recorded. Alright, so as we mentioned, it'll be landing on November 17th, and as you may have guessed by the title, it's a work in the vein of Xanathar's Guide to Everything, in that it contains a little bit of something for everyone. Though this particular book is stepping up to be, in this case literally, a game changer. It's also worth noting that much like Xanathar's Guide, the rules here are entirely optional. You don't have to allow them in your campaigns if you don't want to. Though we suspect, kinda much like with Xanathar's Guide, you're gonna have a hard time convincing your players of that. Also, because of the PHB plus one rule for Adventurers League, there's a minor amount of stuff here that has been republished from other sources, bringing it all together into a single volume. Having said that, there is plenty of new stuff in this book. The book weighs in at 192 pages and so is exactly the same length as the aforementioned Beholder's Book of Bonus Rules and is split into four chapters. Character options, spells and magic items, group patrons, and tools for dungeon masters. As with most 5th edition source books, there will be two covers available. The standard cover, featuring Tasha standing over her cauldron, casting a spell with a spellbook in hand, as candles stacked high on books melt and drip wax everywhere. Libby is horrified. The standard version will be available in all stores and online retailers. The alternate cover, available exclusively in hobby stores, does not feature artwork by Hydro74 this time, and so is actually in a different style to the other Wizards Hobby Store exclusive covers. The alternate cover is designed by Wiley Beckert, and features Tasha standing over her cauldron casting her spell, with Grasset in the background offering her his heart. We'll include links in the show notes, you can go check it out. The character options by far make up the majority of the book, and it's here that you'll find the rules that, as Lennon alluded to, will have the most impact on your games. So we're going to get all the other stuff out of the way first. Starting with the chapter on DM's tools, Tasha's will contain reprints of the sidekick rules from the D&D Essentials Kit, which allows players to have sidekicks, NPCs that accompany them on their journeys, with their own skills and abilities that can be leveled up, intended for smaller groups who need a bigger party size. The DM's Tools section also contains rules for supernatural environments and natural hazards, such as eldritch storms filled with undead beings, magical roads that fold on space itself like a wormhole, and a mimic colony, which is just as terrifying as it sounds. Carcer will love it. How to negotiate with monsters, what is and how to have a session zero, and a slew of new puzzles and traps to drop into your game. The group patrons chapter is essentially a reprint and expansion of the rules introduced in Eberron Rising from the Last War. For those unfamiliar, a group patron is effectively the sponsor of the group, someone who can issue them quests, but can also provide perks to an adventuring party. Each group patron comes with its own perks and quests, and examples that we've seen include an esteemed adventuring academy, ancient beings, an undead lich, a merfolk sovereign, and a dragon. An ancient dragon. So, onto the spells and magic items chapter. Tasha's will contain, quote, spells for both player characters and monsters, featuring nine new conjuration spells to summon spirits. For those that can remember the recent Unearthed Arcana on summoning spirits, these will sound familiar, but for everyone else they are as follows. Summon Aberrant Spirit, which is a Beholderkin. Summon Bestial Spirit. Summon Celestial Spirit. Summon Construct Spirit, which is a Golem or a Modron. 
summon elemental spirit, summon fae spirit, summon fiendish spirit, summon shadow spirit, which is to summon a monstrosity, and summon undead spirit. Each spell produces the relevant creature type, and upcasting these spells increases that spirit's HP, attack bonus, and more. Each of these spells will have at least two spirit options, and the spells themselves will range from 2nd to 6th level, each taking one action to cast, have a range of 90 feet, and full VSM components, with the material component actually being a costly item. Each summoned spirit spell lasts for an hour and requires concentration. Additionally, Lightning Strike is making an appearance on the Artificer spell list, and we're getting two new spells from the titular maiden herself, Tasha's Caustic Brew and Tasha's Otherworldly Guise. This is also technically a minor spoiler for the bit we're going to cover on character options later, but as the Blade Singer Wizard is being reprinted, it should also be safe to assume that we're going to see the cantrips from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide also getting a reprint. These are Booming Blade, Green Flame Blade, Lightning Lure, and Sword Burst. As for magic items, there will be a range of new ones heading our way ranging from uncommon to legendary, some new artifacts, and some magical tattoos. We've been told that these magical items aren't just your standard plus one or plus two weapons, but a lot of them are super flavorful and mechanically really good. Some of the magic items will be class specific, such as a spellbook for wizards that looks like a romance novel but actually contains a bunch of illusion spells, or the bell branch, a tree limb that's also the spellcasting focus for druids and warlocks. Sorcerers will be getting extra planar shards, and we know that the Taraka deck is becoming an artifact that can trap spirits. There's a demonomicon of Igvilv, whoever she is, and it will be making appearance, as well as a Baba Yaga themed artifact in there. As for the magical tattoos, there was, as with a lot of this book, an unearthed arcana recently that touched on them, but the only one confirmed so far is a magical tattoo that improves unarmored AC. So that just leaves us with the majority of the book to cover. Luckily, it's all under one chapter, character options. Starting with classes and subclasses, there will be at least one new subclass for each of the 13 classes. That's right, 13 classes. The Artificer is getting a reprint from Eberron with a few minor lore tweaks to make it fit in with any world, not just Eberron. Of the 22 subclasses we know are coming with this book, five will be reprints from other books, not including the three for Artificer. The reprinted subclasses are as follows. The Order Domain Cleric and Circle of Spores Druid from Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, College of Eloquence Bard and Oath of Glory Paladin from Mythic Odysseys of Theros, and as previously mentioned, the Bladesinger Wizard from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. All of these are reprints as they were in the source material, with the exception of the Bladesinger Wizard, which we've been told will be receiving minor tweaks, but no further word on what that means. In this chapter, you'll also find rules on customized character origin stories, similar to the This Is Your Life section of Xanathar's Guide to Everything, including magical origins and backstories. Much to Ostron's delight, there will also be, quote, multiple psionic-themed subclasses featuring an evolved version of the previously playtested psionics mechanics. And for those classes that allow a companion, such as those with access to Find Familiar, there will also be new creatures. We also hear that multiple new feats will open up multiclassing in new ways, which is reminiscent of the recent Unearthed Arcana, which featured feats that were essentially multiclassing light. And we also hear that there will be alternate class features for every class, similar to the class feature variants Unearthed Arcana, including spell versatility and the much-loved patch to the Ranger Beastmaster that introduced Primal Companions. 
The new subclasses that we know are coming are as follows. For the Artificer, we have the Armorer specialization, which lets you sling lightning, master spells both old and new, and you can create and customize armor. There will also be new Artificer infusions as part of the Artificer expansion. For Bard, the College of Creation, which uses the primordial power of the Song of Creation to animate objects, and the Sorcerer will be getting the Psionic Mind? Maybe it's the Aberrant Mind, sources are kind of unclear. Either way, it's a Psionic-themed Sorcerer origin. Warlocks will be getting the Genie Patron that allows you to choose an element for the Genie and decide what kind of vessel they dwell in. Each Genie includes extra spells to choose from, including the Wish spell, and requires every Dungeon Master to start practicing their Robin Williams impressions. Or Will Smith, if that's your preference. The Wizard will see a series of new spellbook options, a psionic subclass, and the aforementioned patched blade singer, though no news on any specifics for any of that. Finally, the bit that has been causing a bit of hubbub on the internet, the lineage system. This new system essentially replaces the race element of the character creation, and instead focuses on a character's lineage, allowing almost freeform customization of the characters, including ability score modifiers, disentangling personal traits from cultural traits. Under the lineage system, races from the player's handbook are considered the archetypal version of those races, but the new origins let you create exceptional members of that race, reassigning ability scores as you like. Further, players can create completely new custom lineages that can be entirely unique and unassociated with anything in the player's handbook with a fill-in-the-blank style template. No further details on the lineage system are really known at this point, other than it also appears to remove all racial prerequisites for feats for characters created under the new system. And finally, as part of the release of the lineage system, Wizards of the Coast have removed the negative racial modifiers from Kobold and Orcs as seen in Volo's Guide to Monsters, bringing them more in line with their Eberron and Wildmount counterparts. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is available for pre-order now through online retailers and your friendly local gaming stores, but currently not on D&D Beyond. As you can imagine, the amount of changes coming in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything means that D&D Beyond have a few architectural changes to make to the platform before they can begin taking pre-orders. And as always, links will be in the show notes. Um, I did want to say I saw a tweet where um, D&D Beyond indicated... They definitely will have the book available when it releases. They just aren't taking pre-orders. So apparently there's no concern about it being on D&D Beyond. They just can't take pre-orders. Well, that's good to know. Um, as we said in the opening copy, this information has been spread so far throughout the internet with different Twitter media personalities i guess is probably the best way to describe them that wizards have relationships with so these are people like mika burton as an example um all of them have been given little tiny previews and it's scattered across absolutely everywhere so we've tried to collate as much as possible there's probably things that we've missed there's probably going to be a load more stuff that's released between this recording and when the show comes out so you may already know all this by the time we get there but for everything that we've got here right now i think well, a lot of it is probably going to be rampant speculation, and there is so much here that we know that is coming with Tasha's Guide to Everything. So I guess I'll just start by throwing it over to Ryu and saying, I know that you kind of went into this a little bit blind because, again, there was so much information we just hadn't had a chance to pull it all together and have a good discussion behind the scenes about it. Having heard what we've spoken about, what's like your main favourite things from this so far, or... Th things that you want to talk about, things that might concern you, you know, so on. 
Well, obviously my favorite thing is having an ancient dragon as a group patron. Yes. <laughs> yep. I probably could have answered that without actually asking you, couldn't I? But probably. <laughs> this is what's yeah. called I also... This is what's called padding the runtime, folks. Oh, we don't need to pad this. <laughs> I also really like that they're going to be making some tweaks to the Blade Singer. The Blade Singer is my favorite spellcasting class other than the Wild Magic Sorcerer. And I've even though it's my favorite, I still felt like there was something missing from it. So I'm excited to see what the minor tweaks will be. Yeah, they haven't actually said what it is that they are going to be. But I know that there comes a point with the Blade Singer where I want to say it's around level six-ish. The idea behind the Blade Singer is that you are effectively a melee wizard. But it gets to the point where the wizard's spells start outperforming anything that you are able to do in melee. And so you eventually just become another backline wizard. So I'm hoping that what they've done is kind of tweaked that curve a little bit there to actually keep up the melee wizard angle. Yeah, because the Blade Singer is the closest you can get to a battle mage, which was mm. an explicit class in a couple of different editions of D&D. Um, but as you said, it, it leaves something to be desired on scaling. So it would be nice if they fixed that curve a bit. Yeah, although having said that, with the Battle Mage, given the fact that in this one we're going to be getting the multi-classing light variant rules that we had in a recent Unearthed Arcana are going to be in this book in some form, you may just be able to do that. In fact, that kind of is what I'm getting is the main theme of this book, is anything you want to create, we've probably got rules that will let you do that now. Also, good on wizards for getting rid of those negative racial modifiers. Thumbs up. Yeah, definitely for doing that for the kobold on the orc. Absolutely. But talking of the racial modifiers, so let's dive into the lineage system then. So this one has caused a bit of a stir on the internet, and to say it's polarizing, probably a touch of an understatement. You've got some yeah. people on one side that are claiming that Wizards of the Coast has given in to the social justice warriors and the whole company has gone to hell, and so now you can only play a character that is a 17th generation orc once removed that is also uh, some sort of wizard fighter that has um, some sort of non-standard gender and you know all sorts of stuff going on and then on the other side you get people that are saying it's great because they're able to create the intelligent orc that they always wanted to or maybe the strong halfling then you get a mix of opinions that are like you know are gnomes and goblins supposed to be as strong as orcs and goliaths is an orc supposed to be as dexterous as an elf and all these sorts of things as well where they're saying that the removal of the ability scores tied with race kind of ends up completely homogenizing everything and then what good does race actually become other than a aesthetic choice so a whole range of things there but i want to know what you guys think of this because coming from pathfinder second edition angle i quite like the way that they've done it there but i also know that i'm a bit of a fan of pathfinder second edition so i don't want to taint the discussion too much i see both sides of the argument to a point I don't think that Wizards has gone to hell for doing this, but... <laughs> are <laughs> um, you sure? But I can see how people who are used to the way things have been for so long are having resistance to the change. And that's really just 
that's just a symptom of being human. We're all resistant to change, no matter what the change is. And especially if it's in something that we've loved for a long time, like our hobby. But I think that the change was really needed. And especially now, this year, in this time. Yeah, I'll go with you on that. Also, people who are wondering if smaller races are supposed to be as strong as larger races, look up a little thing called the Wilkes score. It It's an actual equation that calculates your strength based on your size, and it's what all the weightlifters and powerlifters of the world go off of when they're actually talking about how strong they are. So somebody who's smaller can have a higher Wilk score than somebody who's larger. So there's stuff like that too, that you can take into account in the game if you want. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when it comes to things like those sorts of racial stats, the whole point of something like D&D is that the characters that you're playing, as far as the game system goes, you are meant to be unique. You are meant to be uh, the chosen ones. that are better, stronger, faster, whatever, than the vast majority of your species. So honestly, even if you do want to play a halfling that can uh, hold a goliath on their baby finger, that should be something that you're able to do that is supported by the system. Um, Also, I think that one other major thing that a lot of people aren't necessarily seeing in this is that there are still choices to be made on your race particularly when it comes to things like humans don't have dark vision um tieflings will still have hellish rebuke dragonborn can have the breath weapon you know there are things that are unique about the race that give you think it's not just all about the stats are you i thought it said that those are modified as well Um, like i thought i thought those have now become optional characteristics that you can select as well i mean maybe on the entirely create your own custom lineage fill in the blank template sheet but yeah because that's i can see a certain amount of the argument because if there are no racial bonuses no racial prerequisites no racial features to any of the races then the races don't exist right other than as people pointed out in a sense of description that is only applicable from a narrative point of view. Um, And I think, and this is what's probably going to piss a lot of people off, is I feel like a lot of the discussion has got hung up on the vocabulary of the term race. And in terms of the game universe, what's being described are different species. And... All of the species are humanoids, and they're all relatively the same size. So there can be an argument that um, they all could fall within certain aspects of one another in terms of physical and mental characteristics. I think even if you use comparative scales, it's going to be hard to prove that somebody who's two and a half feet tall has the same physical potential as someone who's eight feet tall, but I don't know enough about the details of biology to really make that argument. But I can see where those people are coming from, where I mean, if you remove all of the defining characteristics from the races, then why bother? 
See, that was another thing that I was that I was thinking about when I said I see both sides of the argument. Because while I completely agree with you, I also completely agree with the other people who are having problems with the word race. Because even though they are supposed to be more of different species instead of different races, almost all of the non-human races are based off of existing non-white racial stereotypes. And that's where people get hung up on things like using the word race. Yeah, and I can I can see that argument. I just... I wonder at what point that becomes an issue of personal responsibility. But I don't want to get into that discussion. I have a massive problem with this from a mechanics point of view, which probably okay. doesn't surprise anyone at all. So, let's <laughs> nope, talk about the mechanics then. Do tell. So basically, regardless of whether you're trying to use this to, you know, maintain racial purity or make a two and a half foot tall orc with an amazing singing voice, high intellect, and a non-standard gender. If you give this to a power gamer, they are just going to have biological reactions that should not be described in mixed polite company. <laughs> a field day, I think, is the phrase you're looking right. for. So I don't know because we haven't actually seen this, if this is literally possible, but in my mind, this allows you to create a small size character with halfling luck, dragonborn breath, orc resistance to dropping to zero hit points, and boundless intelligence and wisdom, just as an example off the top of my head. Right, though I will say, I think that that's a lot of... Um, I know that we said rampant speculation... But I wouldn't be surprised if what you effectively get is all of those are the equivalent of, like, choose one. Like, you can have the halfling luck, or you can have the orcish resilience. You can't I, have both. That would I how know, I would... but a lot, of, a lot of the newer races that have been introduced have two or three racial characteristics applied to. And right, okay. if indeed you can shuffle those around, I don't think it's going to be limited to just one per species. Because, for example, you know, elves have dark vision and the thing where they don't need to sleep for eight hours. Um, orcs have the uh, as the resistance to falling to zero hit points. They can get one back. I forget what that's called. Um, and they have a couple of other things. Each race has two or three. If they're limitlessly shuffleable, then you can create super beings, essentially, by mm -hmm. putting all that together. Which, I mean, if I want to be a jerk about it, I could argue is defeating the purpose because now you have people engaging in eugenics. But I think that's <laughs> taking the argument a bit far. I um, think so. So I think their heart is in the right place. I think their intentions are pure. The problem is... As you brought up, this is something to do in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. But Pathfinder 2nd Edition was designed from the ground up to allow and incorporate something like this. When you try to shoehorn this system into a, uh, a set of mechanics that isn't designed to incorporate it, you're gonna get unbalanced characters out of the gate. And 
I know that people, particularly Jeremy Crawford, have been trying to argue that there's no such thing as an unbalanced character. It all comes out in the wash. And then there are other people who argue that if you have an unbalanced character, you're failing as a DM. And they have a certain amount of valid points, but that doesn't help anybody who's trying to DM for the first time. Yeah, I mean, th- that is something that this book is going to make a lot more difficult is anybody who is attempting to DM and trying to keep several sets of rules in their head or to reference at the table. And I realize this is pos- this is probably a bad argument to make, but my personal fear on this is that you have players who are probably jerks and don't actually believe anything they're arguing, but I can see particularly hostile players come to a table with a custom character that is power game to hell. The DM tells them no, and then the player comes back with your intolerance of my personal choices is unacceptable and I'm reporting you to all of my friends as a racist homophobic jerk to use a light term for what that last word would probably be (laughs) I mean if any of my players turned up and did that they would be shown the door pretty damn quickly and that's a very fast way to ruin friendships I feel I don't think that your fear is entirely unwarranted but I am putting my faith in people in that most people will not do that. Speaking of other things that Ostron hates, psionics. (laughs) Apparently they're making an appearance in this book. Well, see, (laughs) I didn't go into this with the intention of urinating in everyone's breakfast cereal, but I feel like I have to go there. Keep it in the cauldron if preferable. (laughs) If that's where she's making the cereal, whatever. <laughs> um, so this book comes out with saying that it's full of a bunch of new stuff, but looking at the summaries, I don't feel like it is. Okay. Like, you've got a bunch of things reprinted from source books that are already out. You've got things that we know we've seen in Unearthed Arcanas. And you've got mechanics that have at least been hinted at or talked about as optional rules in a bunch of different other places. I feel like this is essentially just like Adventures League 3.0. This takes a whole bunch of disparate rules that people have been using or that are the most popular coming out of various source books and reference materials. They mash them all together in this book. That allows the Adventurers League players to select this book and get a sort of best of compendium that they've been waiting for ever since all of these other books came out. Like when it said that it was picking specific classes from things like Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica and Sword Coast Adventures Guide, I have to wonder if all of those infographics we got earlier on was wizards going to D&D Beyond and saying, hey, what are the most popular subclasses from these different resources? And then once they had that data, they yanked it out and said, okay, we're taking those subclasses, we're putting them in this book, and that should calm down a lot of the Adventures League people. 
I mean, quite possibly, but there are only five reprints with 22 new subclasses coming. Yeah, but I went back and counted up the Unearthed Arcanas that have come up over the last year or so, and you get pretty close to that total if you add in the reprints. Right, but Unearthed Arcanas are playtest material. They're not stuff that's actually used by the vast majority of people that are out there. Right, I places like us we do all the time because we're knees deep into this but i think for the general public this is going to be seen as a massive expansion yeah quite possibly i just i think there are a certain number of people who if they follow wizards releases and or the stuff we talk about here there isn't going to be a lot that hasn't been seen before somewhere else either in an unearthed arcana or in another source book like the updated psionics rules, I'm pretty sure that's just going to be the psionics unearthed arcana that came out back in April. Oh yeah, most likely. But again, that's, that is kind of the point of playtesting, isn't it? They're not going to put something out for playtesting and then never see it again, but introduce 20 classes that haven't been playtested. No, that, that I understand. I just, like I said, my sort of uneasy feeling is them marketing this as new as opposed to saying official releases of the Unearthed Arcana material right, from okay. X. Sure, sure. Which I could be wrong. They could be releasing entirely new subclasses that we've never seen before. But I doubt it. Yeah. Though they're sure to have changed from their Unearthed Arcanas. Absolutely. I would hope so, because some of those were hideously broken. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, some of the things like, you know, the sidekick rules being reprinted from the Essentials kit, I think that that's actually a good thing because not everybody owns the Essentials kit, whereas when you kind of stick it in a book like this, then it means that they, you know, I can't see many people, a bit like Xanathar's Guide, I think this is actually going to become quite an essential part of a lot of D&D games. But considering how much it changes so many of the rules, particularly around the lineage system and everything like that, I've actually started wondering, do you think that this is actually gonna become a book that a bit like Xanathar's Guide is almost viewed as mandatory at most tables or am I just alone in that thought? No, I think, I mean any book that includes new spells and new feats, most players sort of demand that it be allowed um, just because almost all players want more options for customizing their characters so yeah, if it has new spells and new feats in it and new magic items, then like I've said before on other things, arguing to exclude this book is going to be a tough sell for a lot of players. Yeah, do you think that this is um, going to effectively take this to... They would never apply this label, of course, but like D&D 5.5? I don't know. It depends on... I mean, I think it ultimately depends on what happens with the lineage system. I, I would mean, agree with that. Like, if... I don't think we have enough information to give a conclusive statement on that or not. I'm I'm more looking at the adoption effects. Like, yeah. I think, I think it, it all depends on how this lands on Adventurer's League. Because not... I mean, not necessarily literally, but Adventurer's League is sort of the benchmark for this is how Wizards expects people to play the game. So I think if the Adventures League starts mandating the lineage system, then yeah, this is a major turning point. 
for fifth edition. If it just becomes, this is an optional rule that some people can use, but we're not going to implement it anywhere official, then this is just another... It, it moves from being a... It moves from being an essentials book to being another appendix on the Dungeon Master's Guide. Because the Dungeon Master's Guide is full of optional rules that a lot of people don't use. So I think that's the sort of line of demarcation is where does the lineage system end up getting used? Because to me, what changed edition... 3 to edition 3.5 is they went back and rewrote the fundamental basics of a lot of classes in the edition. That's what shifted. If you take out the lineage system, most of this is no different from what they've done before. There are new right. subclasses, there are new magic items, there are a few new spells. There's certainly more than we've seen in a lot of other places, but they haven't fundamentally changed anything about the system. Add in the lineage system, and now you're talking about a paradigm shift. Yeah, and I agree there. I think it depends on the lineage system, because obviously it could come out and it could be terrible, and nobody could ever use it. I don't think that'll be the case at all, but it could be. I mean, even if it is terrible, somebody's going to use it. Well, I mean, yeah, there are, there are people who use honor and sanity scores. And those are all optional there rules are, in the DMG, if you didn't know. Worse than that, there are people who use the Greyhawk initiative system. <laughs> <laughs> and we've lost Ryu for the rest of the evening as she is having yep. to go and lie down in a dark room. Yep. But yeah, so... PTSD. Also, complete side note, but whoever wrote this is very bad at puns in the sense of they made one and I hate them for it. Because... Which if you know anything about the history of the character, the spell Tasha's Otherworldly Guise is just wrong. <laughs> and I'm not going to explain it. I'm going to leave that as an in-joke. All right. All right. Well, look out for a short rest coming on uh, the history of some of the more important named wizards from around the multiverse soon. And, um, of course, in amongst all of this, we've also got the other parts for Dungeon Masters, such as the group patrons that Ryu has already mentioned, but we're also going to be getting a load of puzzles and traps and supernatural environments and hazards, including things like a mimic colony. Um, do you think that anybody really needs a mimic colony? Anyone? I know somebody who does. Yeah. yeah He's but... one of our patrons. <laughs> okay, so there is, there is always the thing where it's the exception that proves the rule, but anybody sensible, do they need a mimic colony? <laughs> I was quite interested in the uh, one which... Um, we've written it as how to negotiate with monsters. The actual Wizards of the Coast official press release says how to parlay with monsters. I was wondering why there would need to be a chapter, or not a chapter. I was wondering why there would need to be an entry on that. Is Am I missing something? Well, I'm wondering if that's less for Dungeon Masters and more for players. Because oh, oh, you don't have to stab everything? It's not just a bag of blood with loot? Right. Um... Although, I am i mean, if it has guidance for Dungeon Masters on how to possibly clue your players in that, hey, perhaps talking with these people before getting out the stabby things might be a better <laughs> idea, um, that would be, that would be helpful. Um, 
but yeah, I think there is a there is still a fairly pervasive issue with any time a lot of player characters see a group of creatures that would otherwise be monsters, they just rush in and start stabbing without really talking about it. Um, it I mean, part of that is video, video game mentality. However, some of that is also from when most of D&D was how can I get experience as quickly as possible. Right, which you could also argue is still kind of a form of RPG poisoning because that got carried over into video games which then fit the cycle. Yeah, but that was still around mm. before RPGs really became a thing. Video game RPGs. I mean, I it might also it might also put in some things that you could do during combat, like trying to ask for surrender from other groups, which isn't really um it isn't really spelled out as far as I know in any of the resources. Like mm. it doesn't I mean, I've seen it house ruled a couple of ways. Like a character can use their action to make a persuasion or an intimidation check and then, you know, the um the monsters might surrender or they might react yeah. differently, but that's at this point as far as I'm aware, that's all entirely up to the DM to just come up with off the top of their head if there's some guidance in that section about you know this is how you could possibly gauge what their reaction would be to an offer of surrender or a demand for surrender or you know the characters trying to convince them that there's a monster running over the hill when there isn't that sort of thing yeah i mean i guess if it were to have tables that would give relevant dcs that could probably be quite helpful to have during the combat that's for certain and I am glad to see that they have put in there about what a session zero is and why it's important to have one and how to have one. Because I think that with so many people coming into the hobby from outside sources, like having watched Critical Role and then thinking every game is going to be like that, or alternatively having watched like an episode of Community or maybe even Stranger Things or something like that and thinking that D&D is going to be a particular way, that a session zero actually allows that all to be cleared up before the game begins. Yeah, because very, very few portrayals of D&D in media, whether they're fictional portrayals as part of a show or live play games, go over the session zeros. Most of them, when everybody sits down for episode one, the characters are all created, the backstories are all worked out, all yeah. of that stuff. And of course, the puzzles as well as traps to drop into your game. So we saw previously with Xanathar's Guide how they had simple traps, complex, advanced, and traps that ran on initiative order and that sort of stuff. But seeing puzzles that you can drop into your games is particularly intriguing because puzzles for me as a dungeon master are always one of those ones where I really like to try and use them and then dread when my players encounter them. Because in my experience it's gone one of a couple of ways. One, you think as a DM you have made it to the most obvious thing ever, but then the players get there and they can't actually figure it out even if you do write the instructions very clearly, they still sometimes can completely miss the point. And two, the other way that it goes is that you come up with a good system but it's a little bit too obscure and then for the players it basically becomes a game of well let's try and guess what the dm was thinking at the time he wrote this as opposed to trying to solve it 
So as a result, I tend to actually steer away from puzzles in my games. A puzzle is something that you guys use, and would you find a ready-made compendium of them useful? I have used them, and they've been fun, but the thing with puzzles that I have found, at least at my own tables, is that you typically need to space them out. You can't do all puzzles all the time because then people start getting really frustrated and brain dead sometimes because they're like, I just finished a puzzle. Now you've given me another one. Mm-hmm. And I've given up with puzzles. <laughs> I've tried to use them in my games. And I think if I were to pull my players, they would say those have been the worst sessions of D&D they've ever played. Right. Is that for similar reasons to what I mentioned earlier? Um, yeah, similar, but to more extremes. Like, um, I don't really have many players that are, um, excited by obfuscation. Like, I, most of my players are not the type of people who they see a puzzle and they want to spend time figuring it out. So... If the immediate answer isn't, or if the obvious answer isn't working, they get frustrated very fast. And some of them check out, some of them just start arguing with each other, and it just very quickly becomes no fun at all. All right, so with everything that we've got coming in this book, what are the parts that you guys are looking forward to the most? Like if you were to buy this book for a particular thing, what would it be? Honestly, for me, it would be the subclass compilation. I would want to look through the magic items because those are always... I make up more magic items than I use out of the books because most of the ones that exist, I'm not a huge fan of because it seems like they're either very, very boring or wildly overpowered. (laughs) But... um, so I'd, I'd want to look through the magic items and see what they have there. I I am also interested in some of the subclasses, but I think my first stop would be the new magic items. Yeah, I mean, on an academic level, I am curious about the lineage system because I, like I said, wanted to see how closely it comes to something akin to the Pathfinder 2nd edition rules for that. But I'm hoping that in the DM tool section where they were talking about supernatural environments and natural hazards, I think one thing that D&D has been lacking for a while is actual rules on exploration because it's largely just left to the DM to try to come up with various bits and pieces. So I'm hoping that that will be a little bit more comprehensive, but I'm also kind of knowing what Wizards of the Coast have done with their releases, a bit like the Mythic Monsters. I was expecting more than we ever actually ended up getting, so... I'm hoping that that will be more what I want, but if not, then I think there's enough in this book that I would still consider it a a definite purchase. Well, see, you had to clarify. I will definitely be looking at the lineage system, but I won't be going into it with a sense of joy and anticipation. I think I'm in the middle from you two. I'm excited to know what changes that they're making, but it's not the main reason why I'm interested in this book. Oh, yeah, no, same. But it is probably... Probably number two. Yeah, it's, it's definitely up there. I am curious as to the sort of changes that they're going to make and how much it will impact the game as a whole. And if we then end up with like a future world where you go to run a D&D session and they say, oh, are we using Tasha's rules or not? You know, I think that's going to be the sort of phrase that's going to come out of this is something similar to... I definitely think that this book has the potential 
to have a classic D&D 5th edition and a post-Tasha 5th edition style of games running. But we'll have to see what it's like when it's released and how it gets implemented. So can we talk about the cover art Of course, yeah. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but much the same as I felt about the stereotypical wizard's attire of Elminster in the DM's Guild release of that book, I am extremely annoyed that they gave Tasha a stereotypical witch's hat. Just why? (laughs) Why would you do that? I like all of the cover art, except for the hat. And because the hat is so, I'm going to say, 1950s Halloween costume witch hat. (laughs) I think I've got that witch hat upstairs, actually. I feel like it really takes away from the cover. I think the only thing that I can think of that they, the reason they put it on there is because they are trying to invoke a very stereotypical witch scene, aren't they? You know, it's got the cauldron, it's got the candles, you've got the big window in the uh, above her that's letting the moonlight through I think it was just done as a to try and sell the the image and the aesthetic they could have done without the hat though almost the entire scene now that you mention the uh, now that you mention the window in the background and the cauldron itself and even the spell book that she's holding mm-hmm. I'm seeing this whole thing as a scene from the movie Hocus Pocus with Bette Midler yes yeah, yeah, very much so. I definitely like the alternate cover better for this one. The thing that I don't like about the alternate cover is that it doesn't match all of the other alternate covers. And I completely understand that too. I was very taken aback when I saw the alternate cover because of how different it is from all of the other ones that they've got for 5th edition. Has there been any sort of explanation as to why they weren't able to get the same artists or chose not to? Not that I've been able to find, but again, like I said, information about this is so scattered all over the place that I don't know. It might be out there somewhere, so if anybody does know, please write in and let us know. But what I do like about the alternate cover better than the standard cover is that I feel like Tasha looks more sinister, more scary, more powerful. And I'm not sure what it is about it, but I think it Honestly, it might be the um, omission of the witch's hat. <laughs> well, she's also got a... Her facial expression is a lot different there. And she's also got one of the demon princes literally offering her his heart. Well, I was gonna, mm-hmm. I was gonna say, if you, if you know anything about the character's history, that alternate cover is full of mm-hmm. Easter eggs. Yeah, like in the bottom left, you can see there's a scroll of hideous laughter that's being created. Um, again, Grutz in the background yet there. Um, the, I think the best way to describe it without giving too much away is the skull in the bottom right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot oh, of stuff Oh, I was thinking of the spinal column flayed ribcage cauldron that she's got. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot there. But yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad. So I've always had an issue with the alt covers in that... When I first started buying the D&D books, I bought the standard covers because alt covers didn't exist. Then they started bringing out alt covers, and I liked them, but I wanted it to match my existing set. So I came up with a plan with a friend of mine where I would buy the alt cover version, and then when he got the regular version, which was always released on Amazon like two weeks later, we would just swap the book over. 
Then they went and released alt cover versions of the core rulebooks. And I got annoyed because I'd given away all my alt cover versions and if I'd known I could have got the core rulebooks eventually in an alt cover, maybe I would have kept the entire set. Now I'm glad I didn't because this would have ruined it. <laughs> I'm so glad that your OCD was <laughs> not triggered there. <laughs> not in the slightest. You should just call up the artist and commission him to give you a bunch of book dust jackets. jackets for everything, yeah. yeah. And just for the sake of listeners who may be saying, oh, but what about the D&D celebration? What about Dragon Plus? We will cover those next week. I promise there was just a lot here to get through with this book. But now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep for some yummy, yummy brains. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Look, I don't care how much you want to, you cannot write a treatise on mind flares and not mention Spelljammer. There are still a few more ideas that I want to try. No, no. I can already see your eyes drooping, and I don't want to deal with that machine today. Just, look, Lennon and I can handle the scary bits, you deal with the other stuff. Excuse me? We're talking mind flayers. It's all scary bits. I meant the stuff that scares Ostron, not the rest of it that should scare any rational thinking being. Right. Okay. Uh, fine. Fine. Uh, where do we start? Funny you should bring that up. Along with the Beholder, arguably one of the most well-known original creatures to come out of Dungeons & Dragons is the Illithid, more commonly referred to as the Mind Flayer. Mind Flayers have been around since the original edition, and their purpose from the beginning has been to ruin everyone's lives, and that includes Dungeon Masters. If nothing else, all the media around the Baldur's Gate 3 video game should have familiarized people with your standard Mind Flayer's appearance. Pink to purple-hued, rubbery skin, cephalopodic head with four tentacles drooping out of its mouth, as small eyes, and lots of floating around. Most people hearing someone shout brains in a desperate, creepy tone will start looking for zombies, but veteran D&D players will know to look for the illithids. The only viable sustenance for them are the brains of other sentient creatures, which they literally consume straight out of a victim's head whenever possible. However, the illithids aren't constantly on a hunt for brain meat. They need to consume one brain every month or so and have a four-month window before they die of malnutrition. Of course, they have a whole bunch of other things they can do with brains, like turn them into intellect devourers, which are not appropriate for low-level encounters no matter what Katie says. As you can see from my colleague here, dealing with illithids has caused lasting trauma for people both in and out of the game. Part of this was actually by design. Midway through the first edition of D&D, a lot of the standard monsters were just starting to lose their luster with players because they were predictable. Even dragons were becoming a bit passé. Then the Mind Flayers showed up, and with them they brought everyone's favourite D&D mechanic, Psionics. One of the reasons Mind Flayers were created was to be a vehicle for introducing psionics, and in lore they are the undisputed masters of it. They literally enslave multiple beings with their psionic powers, just overriding their minds and personalities, and they casually employ those powers to do everything from opening doors to flying their nautiloid spaceships. It's okay, it's okay, I know I said psionics and spaceships, just breathe. Just breathe. Right, yeah, okay, I'm fine. Anyway. 
Their origin in the game was to introduce psionics. Their origin in lore is a little more muddled and is one of those that's been rewritten multiple times. However, the most common origin story for them is that they entered the main realms of D&D from the Far Realm, also known as the place where mind-meltingly weird stuff comes from. They showed up a while ago and basically owned the place. Literally. While their exact origin is murky, all sources agree that when the Mind Flayers arrived, they quickly established an enormous empire. And we're not talking took over the whole Sword Coast. The Illithid Empire had the Prime Material Plane locked down tight, and then moved on to most of the other planes and took those over too. It's rumored that at its height, the demons and the devils considered pausing the Blood War to figure out if the Illithids were something they needed to maybe deal with together. Fortunately for existence, one of their main slave races, now known as the Gith, managed to break some of the mental control and revolted. It was the standard issue of there being more slaves than masters, and there's a good chance the Gith might have wiped out the Illithids entirely if there hadn't been a slight disagreement about how much to use the Illithids' psionic powers against them, which caused the entire race to split and start fighting each other. I'm totally with the Gith Yankee, by the way, and no, not just because they ride dragons around. Mostly. Anyway, if anyone is wondering why the Forgotten Realms is the way it is and doesn't take place in the ruined remnants of an Illithid interplanar empire, it's because all of what we've just covered happened over 11,000 years ago in game time. Since then, the Illithids have been hiding, mostly in the Underdark, though in Spelljammer they're still cruising around in space too. In current Forgotten Realms time, the Illithids are officially doing research on modern races and civilizations with the aim of figuring out the best way to infiltrate and take them over. They're also rebuilding their numbers, which is kind of tricky since the Gith races are still actively hunting them. Encountering an Illithid alone would be rare. At the very least, they're going to have a couple of enslaved creatures with them, either common creatures whose minds they've dominated, or one of the weird mutated things that they like to make on the weekends, such as mind witnesses, aka beholders with Illithid tadpoles in them, and why, why, oh why is that a thing? Mostly it's down to reproduction. If anyone saw that video game trailer that should have come with a content warning, you were treated to the end stages of what's called ceramorphosis. A tadpole is implanted in a sentient creature, and after enough time, it completely overtakes both their mind and biology, turning the hapless creature into a full-blown illithid. That process doesn't work with all creatures, however. Humans, gith, and goblinoids are the races most likely to go full mind flare, and usually when the process doesn't work it's just death for everyone involved. However, since most of the races in the material plane are relatively new to the mind flayers, they do a lot of experimenting and that's when weird creatures show up some of which the Illithids have deemed useful, like the aforementioned Mind Witness. You also have creatures that even created problems for the Illithids themselves, like the Brain Stealer Dragons. Ooh! No. Oh, oh, on second thought, I just saw a picture. Yeah, no, definitely with the gif on this, Mind Flayers need to die. Why would you do that to a poor dragon? Anyway... One interesting thing to note is most Mind Flayers aren't individual actors. Even small Illithid communities will be under the control of what's called an Elder Brain. Essentially, it's just coagulated brain matter floating in a large jar of cerebrospinal fluid. And where does that brain matter come from, you ask? No, it's not all of the other creatures Mind Flayers pull the brains out of. It's the Mind Flayers themselves. Any Illithid that dies has its brain donated to the Elder Brain, who absorbs all the psionic energy, memories, and intelligence of the dead Illithid. So again, unlike zombies, decapitation isn't enough. That head needs to be gone. So why is a jar full of brains a problem? 
Well, they happen to be possibly the strongest psionic creatures in existence. To put it in perspective, they spend their time controlling other mind flayers out to a distance of five miles. Now, this isn't an ant-hive situation. The illithids don't become mindless drones. The elder brains do direct overall goals and thoughts, but they don't micromanage. So, unfortunately, destroying one won't cause the rest of the illithids in the area to have a nervous breakdown and die. As we hinted at earlier, illithids also play or played a big part in Spelljammer. Along with the Beholders, they were considered the primary antagonists of the setting, and their nautiloid spaceships were notable in that they did not need the so-called command chairs that most other spacefaring ships in that setting did. The Mind Flayers are alien enough that they managed it on their own. In modern 5th edition lore, they don't have a lot of these spaceships left, and them revealing one is a big deal, which is why the opening cinematics and the trailer for Baldur's Gate 3 game is supposed to have such a major impact. As mentioned, the Illithids don't at the moment appear to be actively trying to reassert their control over everything. They're doing research. However, most races agree that whatever an Illithid is doing at any given time is generally bad for most forms of existence. There are very few Illithid apologists arguing that they're just misunderstood, and the ones that are probably are mind-controlled. In general, the Illithids serve as the subjects for conspiracy theories and real nightmares. Anytime anyone ventures into the Underdark or just deep enough underground, there's a chance that any enemies encountered may be Mind Flayer slaves. Or worst case, you could run into a Mind Flayer itself. I'm not okay. I'm not either. Right, it's fine. There aren't any tadpoles in anyone's heads or any spaceships to calm certain people down. But we do have to get over to the scrying pool. It's... It, it's empty, right? I mean, there's a bunch of listener feedback in there. But no brains, right? I mean, Ray Ray's assured me it's just words and water. What if they got to her? What if they're making her say that? Uh, okay, honestly, do you think an illithid can mind control her? I mean, they take one look and go, wait, what is this barrage of pictures and noise? What's going on inside this brain? Is it attacking me? Ah. Okay, yeah, you're right. Just, I'm going to have my knives out. That's fine. Maybe the hat too? No. What news from the north? Join us of Rohan. Message for you, sir. Last week, we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, what was your reaction to the combat wheelchair? Do you think the mechanics are sensible? Have you had something similar show up in any of your games? Would you want to use the wheelchair? And do you have experience with Aethys, the world that hates magic? In what edition did you play Dark Sun? Do you think or want it to show up in 5th edition? Dunderhill wrote in in response to episode 130 and said, I really like the College of Spirits Bard and would consider playing one the next time I roll a new character. I don't think a random effect table needs to be the purview of a single sorcerer type alone. The Undead Warlock stacks too much potential on Eldritch Blast as currently written, but I do think it fills a niche for the class that should be filled. TR Knight on Discord says, As a caregiver for someone in a wheelchair, I found these rules wonderful. Anytime we can help players feel represented in a game, all the better. If we as gamers can accept all the magic in the world, weird creatures and monsters of all types, dungeons populated by creatures that have no reason for being there, and more that requires us to willingly suspend our disbelief, then surely we can accept a wheelchair-using adventurer in our parties. I played Dark Sun when it was released for 2nd edition Advanced Dungeons & Dragons and fell in love with that world, even playing the Dark Sun Shattered Lands video game when it was released. Dark Sun offered a welcome change to the standard fantasy gaming we had been playing in AD&D. 
My gaming group at the time was also really into post-apocalyptic stories and movies, so Dark Sun grabbed our interest quickly. I would enjoy a 5th edition version to introduce to my current gaming groups, who have never experienced that world's unique challenges and story potential. And Shiv Panicular Bearhop on Discord says, I played the 4th edition Dark Sun a little. I like the idea of it, and haven't played much of it after that though. Pretentious Latin name wrote in on Discord to say I admired that creator's restraint in making a combat wheelchair. With the existence of magic, I would not have been able to resist making it a combat hover chair instead. Bucket a Chum on Discord says, Thank you for not only your coverage, but also how you covered the combat wheelchair. I recently lost a dear friend to her battle with muscular dystrophy. This topic really hit close to home, and I'm genuinely bothered by the negative reactions to its use. If you've ever seen Paralympians in action, there is nothing in a D&D setting that would hold them back, especially with supportive party members around them. To say that a wheelchair doesn't fit in a fantasy setting is ridiculous on so many levels. Brand Stark, anyone? As for Dark Sun, I like the opportunity to learn as much as I can about D&D lore in different settings. My gaming groups almost exclusively run homebrew campaigns and settings, but I'm never opposed to entering into an official game setting. And Casa, Flutter Extraordinaire, also on Discord, says, I honestly cannot see how people could be offended by the idea of a combat wheelchair. In one campaign, I played a character who was missing a leg, so he rode a dire boar as a form of transport. I can't see how this is any different. Also, the idea of having a bunch of idiot adventures riding around in hover wheelchairs is just amusing to me. I can't wait for them to encounter a 12-foot wall. I've not had any dealings with Dark Sun, but it is fascinating to hear about the other settings. In my current campaign, magic users are sought out by the authorities to conscript and indoctrinate them into a thousand-year war, so players have had to hide their abilities. Thomas wrote in on Discord to say, Indeed, if I had lost an eye in real life and obtained a prosthetic glass eye, there's no reason to not be able to have a glass eye in the game. I think the same analogy works for other situations, such as a wheelchair. Use it as an opportunity to flesh out the D&D world. Just as real-life people have created wheelchairs to conquer all sorts of terrain, the inhabitants of a world with real magic would certainly do the same. Sausage on Discord says, I have a bard that recently lost his hand and opted for a multi-tool replacement instead of a costly regeneration. I cannot see how a combat wheelchair is any different. It's nice to see that none of the vocal minority are present on the Heroes Rise Discord. As for Dark Sun, I never played it, but I can remember the artwork from the second edition vividly. Being a preteen in the days of the satanic panic with overprotective parents, I never had the opportunity to play the earlier editions of D&D. I did, however, always check out the pictures in the books and on the boxes when at the toy store in the mall that had a small role-playing game section when left unattended. I always imagined a Mad Max-type setting with crazed wizards and monsters, and the images from that book definitely sparked my imagination as a kid and has stuck with me. All that to say, yes, I would definitely love to see a 5th edition Dark Sun. And Phoenix on Discord says, I don't see any reason for the outrage. I used something similar back when I started in the 80s. I was going for a James Bond-type villain. I used Tense's floating disc as transportation. People can be so myopic when it comes to their games. The ultimate rule is, have fun. If you need to exclude a group of people to have fun, please find another game to play. As for Dark Sun, I would love to see a 5th edition version. I remember when it came out. It was so completely different from what I had experienced. I grabbed the box set when it was released and loved it. I especially liked the A-frame module format. As I have said before, a Planescape setting would allow for all of those old settings to be new again. Here's to hoping. Well, just on that last note, Phoenix, we'll probably cover it as a rumour probably next week, but the artist who has done all of the artwork for Planescape has announced that he's doing a bit of work for his friends at Wizards of the Coast again. So, maybe. If I had a beard, I would be stroking it right now. 
I'm glad to see that nobody in our listenership, at least the ones that wrote in, are part of that vocal minority too. Yeah. Yeah, for those who weren't privy to the discussion on Discord that came up in a couple of different places, it was mostly positive and supportive, so that's nice. Yeah, and kind of as Phoenix points out at the end there, there's nothing to stop anyone using Tense's floating disc for basically the same purpose. Lots of love for Dark Sun. Yeah, more than I actually thought there would be. Well, it sort of makes sense when you consider how popular grim, dark, gritty fantasy is nowadays. Dark Sun was kind of that for Dungeons and Dragons when it first came out. So, you know, a lot of the races are less idyllic. The setting is certainly harsher and less forgiving. So it it makes sense to me that that, that attracted as much attention as it did. Plus, I'm pretty sure the Mad Max movies were big at the time, and that probably helped. In general feedback, RT Nix at Oblivion Drive on Twitter wrote in to say, Just for the record, not because I want to be that guy, you said Dark Sun was the origin of the Arakoka race. I assume you meant as a playable PC race and not in a general sense, as they appeared in the first edition Fiend Folio. Anyway, sorry about that, I'll remove my pedantic hat. And Rebel on Discord says, Show feedback, thanks. Well, Rebel, you're always welcome. Um... Ostron? Yeah, I was specifically talking about it as a playable race. I did know that the Arakokra had appeared before as a general monster type, but Dark Sun was the first time that people were able to play as them. Excellent. And Artinix, feel free to leave that pedantic hat on. We absolutely love it when people call us out on our bullcrap. And that wasn't even sarcasm. I genuinely do like it. We also love it when... If we've said something wrong, someone corrects us and we can be like, oh yeah, you're right. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's retrace our steps here and get it right. Yeah, I mean, unlike popular rumor, you know, that one of us is a machine and the other one is possessed by some bizarre spirit in a Santa hat, we are actually all human here. So, yeah, we do make mistakes from time to time. I'm not possessed by Katie. We just have an understanding. Sure sure. And that brings us to this week's community questions. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is coming out in November and news is leaking like a sieve. So what have you heard about that most excites you? Psionics? New subclasses? Tattoos? The cover art? And what's your impression of the lineage system? How do you think it will affect the game going forward? Or do you think it will have a wide-reaching effect at all? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 132nd entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 133rd entry on September 9th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. And make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else that good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, then we are always looking for new adventurers to join the party, and all the ways that you can get in touch with us can be found in our show notes. No matter your passion, whether it's scribing, dungeon mastering, or audio alchemy, we're sure to have a spot at our table for you. 
You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server, and our second show, Heroes Rise Dissonant Whispers, a freeform roundtable discussion of the wider topics in D&D. To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience to grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thank you for all of your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gath Memvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, our dungeon master and adventures league correspondent, Indigo Spectre, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwyn, and Timosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Jajorik, Jonathan Hickman, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Mark Onesman, Brewhammer, and Amber Squirrel Craning. Vin Swept, for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vinswept.bandcamp.com and Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. This week in D&D News, I hit my desk. Good stuff. <laughs> if you have an opinion on that, please write in to... <laughs> That's a community question that comes later. And a slew of new... And a slew of new puzzles and traps to drop... And a slew of new puzzles and drop... Uh, tra- traps. <laughs> traps to drop, traps to drop, traps to drop, traps to drop. <laughs> that, that particular Come, trap is me. apparently very effective. <laughs> <laughs> mm. ...version of the previously playtested psionics mechanics. Uh. And for those... <laughs> well done. My dog is scratching an itch. See, she doesn't like psionics either. Right. <laughs> and we also hear that there will be alternate class features for every class. Hold on. Dog, what do you want? Why are you scratching my chair? I require a sandwich, Ryu. I presume that's what your dog sounds like. Can it even speak English? I don't know, but if it could, why would it do so with a British accent? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking English, not American. Jeez. Though in Spelljammer, they're still cir- cruising, not circusing. Mm. <laughs> Ooh. Um, no, you're first. I did. Oh, we didn't hear you. You didn't come through. Really? Yeah. Ugh, yeah. oh, fine. <laughs> well, it's like, um, let me start that sentence over. All right. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at Facebook. It's always amazing how that URL turns people into chickens if you stumble over it. I have no idea what you're talking about. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listener to listener. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, we're nearly there. Just just two more sentences. That's what you got. My mouth has stopped working. But above all, we want to thank all. No, I'm I'm laughing through it. It doesn't work. (laughs)